Hello and welcome to the Canon Rinse Podcast, Volume 10, Issue 468, where we talk about Disco Elysium. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Issue 468 are John Salmon. Uh, actually, I'm currently between names at the moment. Uh, we can uh, we can do a roll check for what we whether we remember our own name and whether we end up coming up with something ridiculous instead. Mr. Joshua Garrity. Oh, Mr. I love it. <laughs> that, that's the ridiculous part of his name, yeah. is it? <laughs> And Dr. Leah Haydu. Oh, excellent. I was I was uh, wondering how we would go with that one. I, I'm into it. I am definitely Lieutenant, a doctor. Maybe? I like doctor. <laughs> I feel like that's going to get me into some legal trouble somewhere along the line, but we'll go with it. No one's ever gotten in trouble for impersonating a doctor before. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just don't do that when you're on an airplane, Leah. I, uh, <laughs> is all I'll say. <laughs> do airplanes even exist anymore? I'm 100% oh, that, not yeah, sure shame. about that one. <laughs> So Disco Elysium is the reason that we're all gathered here today. Um, There is a uh, probably more important than most issues that we run here on Canon Rinse. We want to drop a big fat spoiler warning right up front because this is an an entirely story-based game. It's uh, mechanically pretty straightforward. And so if you're not playing it for the story, then I don't know what you're playing it for the story is the draw so if you've not played it yourself yet and have any inclination that you might want to do so please do so before returning to the rest of the podcast because we will be speaking liberally with uh, story spoilers throughout the podcast this was released back on october 15th of 2019 on pc and it came out the following year on mac in april of 2020 it uh, came out in its final cut form on March 30th of 2021, not too long before the recording, in which uh, it was a free upgrade for the Mac and PC versions that were previously mentioned, and it uh, made its debut on the uh, PS4, PS5, and Stadia. Uh, Still expected in 2021 are the Switch and Xbox One and the Xbox Series versions of this as well. So it is not done releasing on all of its intended platforms, and I'm guessing this is the type of game that will see loving re-releases decades down the line, like uh, many of the games that have inspired it. The developer is... Uh, d- does anyone know how to pronounce it? Is this just Zam? <laughs> I believe it's Zam, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Z-A slash U-M, founded in 2016. It's a uh, Karelian-Estonian studio uh, founded by a novelist named Robert Kurvitz. It was self-published by them as well, designed by Robert Kurvitz, and produced by Kaur Kender, Tonis Havel, and with music by British Sea Power, a, uh, an existing band um, that uh, I don't want to say it's like legacy tracks that were just injected into the game because I believe these are re-recordings or maybe like remasterings of these tracks. So the most of the music was pre-existing, but if you were to listen to the soundtrack, I think it's it's going to sound significantly different than if you had listened to those British Sea Power albums previously. Yeah. So somewhere in between an original soundtrack and a uh, jukebox soundtrack, as it were. Uh, this game launched to very good reviews. Uh, it received a uh, it has or currently sits at a ninety one on Metacritic. Uh, among a critical consensus and an 8.4 among users and it currently sits at a 9.0 
user review average at IMDb as well. Before we get into our own histories, I thought it would be good to go through some of the what is this game? Where does it sit <laughs> kind of genre-wise and what came before? So this is a narrative CRPG, an acronym that stands for Computer Role-Playing Game, which itself might not be that helpful if you're not already kind of in tune with what that genre specification means. Uh, a CRPG is a game that, um, I guess, if you think of games like the first two Fallout games, or uh, I guess uh, Planescape Torment, very specifically in this case, uh, mm. Divinity Original Sin as a, a recent set of examples. Baldur's Gate, yeah. the big one that yeah. I, that I yeah, always certainly. think of. <laughs> Neverwinter Nights. Uh, but anyways, they, they tend to be games that are heavily Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop in general inspired, um, oftentimes with uh, building out character sheets and um, relying pretty heavily upon stat checks along the way, uh, most oftentimes represented uh, in isometric views from above. You'll know them if you see them. It's a it's a pretty, I'd say niche, but there are a lot of examples within the genre and they tend to be fairly well regarded and developed with a lot of love by very passionate uh, developer bases. So if you're if you're not familiar, there's a lot of really kind of new and accessible examples as well. Uh, Wasteland 3 just came out last year as of the time of recording and uh, Divinity Original Sin 2 put out a kind of definitive edition, I think also last year or maybe the year before, but uh, Disco Elysium, for my money anyways, and this isn't a genre that I have a an overwhelming amount of experience with, but this feels to me by far the easiest and most accessible one to get into. Mm. And I think a lot of that comes down to uh, kind of the mechanical simplicity of it. There's really only one battle in the game <laughs> in a traditional RPG sense. And so you're not really encountering a lot of the juggling of magic spells and that kind of thing that adds a lot of the kind of unapproachable complexity to a lot of these games where they tend to be very systems heavy. This was uh, inspired heavily by the Infinity Engine kind of era of CRPGs and specifically Planescape Torment. Um, that is the game that uh, is kind of the primary influence on this one. Uh, the team also cited inspirations like The Wire, the TV show, the writing of Emile Zola, Kentucky Route Zero, another point-and-click adventure from a, well, I guess just finished last year, but it has been in uh, constant production for the past seven or eight uh, True Detective, the TV show, The Shield TV show, again, the writing of DeShiel Hemet, China Mivelle, and the Strugatsky brothers as well. Uh, let's go into our personal histories with this game. I'll start off because I am, I'm pretty certain that I was the first one on the Kane and Rince team to play through this game. It's one of those that I picked up pretty much right at launch. It was uh, one of those where I didn't know that much about it going into it, but sometimes you just get like a, you just get a good feeling about a game. <laughs> you just kind of want to take a gamble before, you know, the, before the conversation starts up, before the consensus comes in. I think for me in my video game history, it's like this and Sleeping Dogs were like the two big success, <laughs> success stories I've had with like 
early blind purchases that I've ended up being like very, very pleased with. I had played it so early that the members of the Canaanites team would make fun of me for playing a game called Disco Elysium. Just like, oh, that sounds like absolute crap. <laughs> like, no, but guys, really, this is really good. You should play this. <laughs> uh, but anyways, it's um, I played it through in 2019 and and haven't revisited for the final cut. I'm just kind of going off of my original playthrough. So if anything is uh, outdated, but it left it like a really strong impression. And I'm, I, I feel like it's one of those games where I'd have to leave it a little bit longer before revisiting it. You know, it's like, uh, it's like a return to the Oprah Den is the same way. Like I, I really want to go back to it, but I feel like I have to give myself some more time to forget the specifics before I can jump back into the world. But, um, I, I love my first playthrough and um it was a you know kind of solid couple of weeks that I was I was going at it and um and experiencing the world anew and um yeah. John, how about you? Uh so I'm not quite as early on as you, but obviously there was a huge amount of positive buzz in the, the last couple of months of the year after it had come out. It was lots of um game of the year lists and things. It was popping up on lots of very uh well thought out uh, critical conversation about it so i picked it up at christmas time it probably was when it had its first sale and i had a bit of uh, christmas money and things so i i grabbed it a couple of months after it came out uh it meant to start playing it but it's one of those things with crpgs i've played a number of them in the past and they don't work very well with my general style of gameplay which is juggling about 50 different games all at once and I can put things down mm. for for years at a time before coming back play half a game and play the next half of it seven years later so I knew it was something that I'd have to sit down and actively bash it out and there was a bit of con- um, confusion I think by uh, specifically from the guys on the computer game show uh, talking about how long it was somebody was saying it was 30 hours long and somebody else was saying that it was it took them 60 hours or 80 hours so I didn't know exactly what to expect um so I kind of sat on it and waited until I thought I had a, a good opportunity to just sit down and smash it out. And that turned out to be probably about the time that all of the pandemic and things started happening when suddenly I didn't have anything to do for about three weeks at all. Uh, so I started playing this and sunk into it really, really deep. Like what you said, I think if it hadn't been for the fact that A, the final cut has come out and B, we're doing this podcast now. I don't think I'd be playing this again for another year or so. I think it would it would be better sit there, sort of sat there simmering at the back of my mind until a little bit later down the line. But with the the podcast and the free update to it, I've gone back and I've played virtually the entire thing again over the course of the last week. Very disappointed that I got right up until kind of the bit at the end of the game where it pigeonholes you into doing the ending. Uh, I've basically done everything else. So yeah, I've had two really stunningly good times with it fairly different playthroughs so be interested to talk about the differences with them as we get on to more gameplay style conversation yeah how about you so i came at it from a little bit of a different angle than uh you two i did not play it when it came out i only played it uh when the uh final cut version came out i played the ps5 version and um when Disco first came out, I heard people talking about it and kind of had a reaction like, oh, God, this seems like it is so up its own ass that I don't even want to go anywhere near it. <laughs> um, and I I mean, I, I at the time, I it was just 
the way that people were talking about it did not really appeal to me. Uh, but as I uh, kind of looked into it more and, uh, you know, as, as more information about it started to come out and particularly as they uh, announced that they would be doing a um, an upgraded version for consoles. I don't I don't play a whole lot of PC games. It's not that I avoid them necessarily. It's just that my computer is not very good. So I, I do tend to pick up things uh, when they are on consoles, if that's an option. So, um, yeah, I played through uh, right after the uh, the Final Cut version came out, which had some problems, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but the short version is it was extremely buggy. Uh, that said, I have played it through to completion once. I think it was, I think it was around a 30 or 40 hour playthrough. I'm not really sure. It might've been longer than that. Um, I, I tried to do as, this is just me. I try to do as much of the side stuff as I possibly can. Uh, most of the time, especially if it's a game that I was enjoying. Um, and uh, I was playing it um, alongside um, Rich from the team. Um, we played we kind of rolled different characters but we were play we were both playing it on the PlayStation 5 at the same time so kind of comparing notes and that kind of thing um so it's it's i'm interested to hear how uh you guys got through because uh, even just some of the the minor differences that that we found were kind of staggering in 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 places so um yeah i i Enjoyed my time with it, and um, I am interested to see how uh, everything else went for everybody else, too. Josh, what is your history with the game? Yeah, so uh, CRPGs have not been my genre traditionally, much the same as a few others on the panel. I tried stuff like Pillars of Eternity, and it just didn't work for me. I, I have had success with, like, Dragon Age, but... I, I don't know if I re it's kind of a hybrid, right? It's a hybrid between action RPG and CRPG. But yeah, like traditionally, it's not been my genre. I didn't play this when it first came out. It much like John, like I waited for a sale, and I ended up playing it kind of towards the end of 2019 and uh, going into 2020 before the pandemic hit. And I and I just it was one of those games, right, where once it had its hooks in me, uh, I just found it very hard not to just keep playing and keep playing and keep playing because I was so gripped by it. And it has kind of ended up being like a bit of a um, bit of a uh, uh, an intro to the genre because 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 of this, I have ended up um, you know looking at other examples. Like I played Divinity Original Sin two uh, in twenty twenty, which I I don't think I would have done if it wasn't for Disco Elysium. And yeah, like I like a lot of the things that Disco Elysium is in love with are things that I care about. So it makes sense that this is the this is the CRPG that finally got me to engage with the genre. Like you know, you you talk through the list of inspirations for Disco Elysium, and it, it might as well be a list of things that I'm interested in, right? It cares deeply about politics, but not in a surface level kind of like Twitter <laughs> Twitter esque oh, approach <laughs> to these topics. Like it understands that things are complicated even if you have like noble intentions and even if you're you're well informed and intelligent things just do not map you know piece together the way you'd want and i just find that really really compelling i haven't completed the final cut but i've gotten a decent way into it i'm like day three day four um into the final cut 
Um, I can speak to some of the differences later on, uh, but I'm enjoying it so far. I should say for my play style, I uh, I did put a lot of points into like logic and encyclopedia just because I was interested in learning more about the world and it offers more information to you that way. But I also dumped a lot <laughs> into Inland Empire, which is basically kind of a bizarro way to play where it like it gives you a lot of a lot of inclinations towards like paranoid and supernatural explanations for <laughs> things that you encounter and it just kind of like it's like those those flashes you get in the back of your mind when you you see something unexpected and your brain's first reaction is to think oh is this is this aliens invading or something, you know, not that specifically, but it's a, uh, it's a very interesting way to play the game and uh, leads to a very, uh, very strange and kind of unhinged main character. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny too, because I, I, I think that I, my guess would be that a lot of people play this game going heavy on the more mental stats, mm-hmm. just because that's like we were talking about. That's, that's the kind of game this is, you know, most of what you are doing is based on your choices is based on like your dialogue options and that kind of thing, which would kind of point you towards that, but it's not just uh, like a simple line down the middle. You know, I had, uh, I, I built my uh, character very heavily on uh, the electrochemistry stat, which um, I, basically the, the concept that I had in my mind was he is a complete drunk and drug addict and just like is relying on this kind of stuff to get him through. And some of the dialogue options you get and some of the mental, um, like the, the chats from the, the sections of your personality that deal with that are really interesting and, and give you a lot of the same information. Well, not the same information, but give you a similar type of information that you get from something like the encyclopedia stat, which, you know, is, is kind of a strictly, mental uh intelligence based thing um so yeah it it i i liked how they spread out kind of the the types of information that you get like you were getting similar stuff just in different ways yeah we should say part of the mechanical backbone in the game is that each of the skills is um it's kind of like a, a a voice inside of your head and as you're having conversations with people or as you're examining things in the environment your skills will uh, kind of chime in in the conversation, not out loud, only in a way that the main character can hear, but they'll advise you. And part of what makes this even more interesting is that, you know, obviously you can expect if there are definite kind of lower bounds on each of these skills. And so, you know, if you've only invested one point into something, then it might not chime in all that often you might not hear from it where somebody who had invested more heavily into it would hear from them in that particular case but there's also kind of a a, call it a soft cap or like a high bar that you don't want to surpass in most cases in which case if you put too many points into any one skill then it becomes such a dominant force in your mind that um it begins volunteering information that is genuinely unhelpful and Mm. becomes quite intrusive. Uh, I think uh, this is most uh, apparent. I think a lot of people uh, index too heavily in encyclopedia because that is the skill that kind of tells you about the world. And there's a lot about this world to learn about as we'll get into shortly. But um, if you put too many points in encyclopedia, 
which is a tempting thing to do, then your brain will be, you know, very often just kind of throwing in completely useless and unrelated bits of trivia about everything that it can think of. And it just, you know, it's this idea of becoming too powerful and having to either take drugs or, you know, de-level certain stats. You can adjust your stats as well by wearing different types of clothing and stuff. And so, you know, sometimes you might want to kind of reel back certain skills that have uh, that have become too dominant. I, I love this system. And it, and it's it's the reason why I love this game, right? It, and for me, the reason why the handling of this skill set is so interesting is there's two parts to it. First of all, this this is your RPG party, right? Like ele- <laughs> electro uh, chemistry is to Leah what Wacker is in Final Fantasy X, right? <laughs> it's a it's a a major component in your conversational battle system. Like same with encyclopedia, same with logic, same with all of these. All right, there they are contributing to the closest thing that this game has to an RPG battle system, which is the conversations, the the interactions you have with other people. But secondly, the reason why I love this system so much is that in a lot of RPGs, pretty much all RPGs, to be honest with you, you always try to role-play, unless you're specifically decided you're going to role-play as an absolute arsehole, most people role-play as like an idealized version of themselves, right? They... They role play as the best version of themselves, the the version that they want to project out into the world, the person that they believe that they are. But you're not always, you know, empathetic. You're not always um, intelligent. Like sometimes your empathy leaves you. Sometimes your courage leaves you. Sometimes these things that you think are an essential part of who you are just don't click together and you, and you fail to be that person in real life in in the moment um and i love the way the dice rolls are a great like mechanical simulation of that that you can have like these high stats in empathy you can have these high stats in authority but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're guaranteed to succeed sometimes a situation maybe um everett claire has put you in a really uncomfortable chair that compromises your ability to to think clearly and argue coherently and suddenly your strength leaves you and i love that i love that this game forces you to role play as a human being rather than a superhuman who's perfect all the time but anyways let's let's keep a little bit of momentum going here i just want to give a brief brief kind of history and rundown of some of the most central points to this world of Elysium. Um, For a single game so far, there's a surprising amount of depth to the history of this world that they've created. Um, So Elysium is a uh, series of landmasses known as Iolas that are separated by the Pale, which is a mysterious connective tissue in which the laws of reality begin to break down. And prolonged exposure to the pale can cause mental instability, and traversing the pale is considered highly dangerous. Um, at one point, you do have the pale weaponized against you, but it's this kind of it's this interesting, interesting world in which all of these different islands are separated by this kind of madness-inducing fog. Uh, there <laughs> are several political factions that are 
at work in this world. Uh, communism, founded by Krasmazov, who killed himself following the failed revolution. Um, it's kind of the People's Party, but no one wants to be associated with it at this point because the communist revolution failed so spectacularly 50 years ago, um, 50 years before the events of the game, after gaining kind of a brief two or three year foothold in um, a few of the continents that uh, though the kind of political philosophy persists, the modern communists tend to call themselves socialists or social democrats in this modern age instead. There's a lot of hostility towards communism in Revachal, which is the city in which this entire adventure takes place, since the communist revolution, the war, uh, led to the city being in the kind of sorry and bombed out state that it's currently in. So yeah, it was it was one of those situations where there was a plague that devastated one or two of these major islas, and Krasmazov used that situation to propose like a very humanist and very kind of people's revolution style of political party. They deposed the ruling governments of a couple of these islas and ended up kind of setting up their own communes and uh, toppled a couple of monarchies as well. But in the end, they were the prevailing moralist government Mm. that was kind of ruled over the other islas, saw the encroaching communist popularity as being inherently threatening and moved in pretty quickly and stamped it out. And so, you know, in the way that these things often go with the winter riding history, communism was more or less kind of blamed for, you know, the audacity to stand up as it were. And the world, or I guess Ravichal in particular, being in such a sorry state is due to the the war and people still blame communism. Uh, there are some fascist factions as well. Uh, they tend to call themselves traditionalists or nationalists and get upset if you associate them with fascism in particular. It is a kind of an explanation or a venting of frustration or scapegoating for why the world is in such a sorry state, which certainly is tempting if you are in a city that is as that is in a state such as um, such as Ravichal, then it is tempting to to desire the establishment of a good, strong state to be erected upon the ruins without the corrupting influence of all these other races that they've scapegoated for so long. And you do, you'd meet characters that, that want to kind of rebuild the strength of this kind of centralized, a generally a pretty narrow ethnostate uh, to rebuild upon the, the ruins of what they're currently living in. Um, there are yeah. moralists as well. You'll find in the moralist international or the moral intern who are the kind of prevailing ruling party of, uh, of the world, um, a coalition that rules the various Iolas. And on paper, their belief system kind of describes itself as being like a rather sensible ideology of doing good by everyone, um, mostly refusing to have much of an opinion on anything. It describes itself as being very centrist but it also it also takes on these very religious overtones as well and particularly in the deification of the innocences which are kind of pope-like figures the most prominent being dolores day who was a historical figure who expanded the world via exploration was generally good to her subjects but I think it's kind of swept under the rug how 
uh, how harshly she put down any oppositional movements as well. And so you'll encounter paintings and followers of Dolores Day throughout throughout the game, uh, and then the final faction being kind of the ultra-liberals who endorse a certain kind of extreme laissez-faire capitalism. Um, basically, money makes the world go round, and they are detached from any serious political baggage in an effort to focus on what they do best, which is simply making lots of money. Money can buy education, class, and culture, but of course... Not everyone can be along for the journey. So it is inherently exclusionary in that way. And so you get all these kind of forces kind of butting heads at various points throughout the investigation. One of the one of the things that makes the game so fascinating is like its examination of um, institutions and like systemic problems. Like uh, all of these are like stand-ins, right, for things that exist in in our world like ultra liberalism is very much like uh, talking from like a uk perspective like this is uh tony blair's or you know new labor or you know post margaret thatcher uh you know labor's reaction to post margaret thatcher um that kind of like uh we we are you know we're not racist we're not nationalists but we will we will take all the other awful stuff um associated with right wing politics um we'll be hyper fixated on money all of that stuff um and just like you know you were talking about fascism uh, as a tool to kind of it it's a t- fascism and the the uh, targeting of certain groups of people it's always used as basically uh, a smokescreen to hide hide the real kind of pla- you know movers mm-hmm. and shakers right the people who are actually causing pain and actually causing suffering in the world it's easier to blame a group of outsiders than than the person who gives you your paycheck uh, yeah all of this stuff is really fascinating again like it it, it views it through the the same lens that it views much of the other kind of it talks about ultra liberalism and moralism with the same kind of like very critical but also deeply nuanced way that it does with any other kind of political leaning it it kind of understand even though it doesn't agree with these positions it kind of understands why a majority of people would kind of go for moralism right because it sounds great on paper but it's still deeply harmful yeah, there's there's kind of mentioned, but almost in hushed tones. That uh, although although a lot of people seem very uh, enamoured with Dolores Day, there's a few points in the game where they you will also be told that despite all of the alleged positives, she was also very very vicious, kind of in starting wars and uh, it, like a colonialism style of uh, government. Mm-hmm. And yeah, people people tend to not really want to talk about it unless they're specifically slamming that viewpoint so in this adventure you play an amnesiac cop who reawakens after a multi-week bender dangerously unhinged and suicidally depressed Uh, you've been called to revishal to investigate a murder Uh, you kind of awaken post this bender without much context or memory of why you're there and what you're doing which is a really nice kind of clean slate for the player to start out on uh, so that you know the player can learn along with the character, but um, but there's enough backstory. And again, this is another huge tie back to Planescape Torment, where your yeah, character yeah. is amnesiac, 
but had a history, a very important history before that uh, people will have opinions on throughout the game. And so you have to really tease out whether people truly haven't met you before or whether people have a pre-existing opinion or whether you've done or said terrible things to various people that you encounter through the adventure. And um, it leads to this sense of kind of nervous detachment as you don't know who's telling you the truth, who's trying to manipulate you, who knows more than they're letting on, uh, which mm-hmm. is a, a very interesting... The The main character, who uh, was named uh, Raphael Ambroisius Cousteau, but for some reason, some amount of evidence points towards Harry Dubois, but we all know <laughs> what's up. Is <laughs> the head of a major crimes unit in Precinct 41 in Jamrock, which is kind of the next big city over from uh, Revachal. Over 18 years of service, he solved 216 cases and has made three kills, which is low for Precinct 41, a rather brutal precinct, uh, making him a top officer, both in terms of effective effectiveness and humanism. Uh, but he's always been a bit uh, impulsive and a bit self-destructive, which really came to a head after his fiance left him and kind of sent him into a downward spiral where we kind of find him at the bottom of at um, during this, this stage of his journey. This, the, I mean, this is a classic character archetype for crime fiction. Like, this is, this is McNulty, this is Russ Cole. I mean, God, you could even use Sherlock Holmes here, right? Even though it's possibly a more sophisticated version of that. Like the 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 cop that is is good at what they do, but is broken in so many ways fundamentally. And like, even though like ultimately you have a lot of control as you know as the game goes forward, like you have a lot of control over who. Harry Dubois is and and how he is through the events of the game. This character is incredibly well fleshed out um, post the events of the game. Everything like there's a real there's a real sadness with a lot of the stuff that um, you encounter that deals with the character's past, especially uh, especially his fiance. Um, but there the, there are moments of like. Like it takes some like really kind of uh, very simple interactions that don't feel don't feel that big a deal um, in isolation, but are, are informed by all of this. By are informed by all of these these um, mistakes and and all these horrible blunders that Harry has made. Uh, a moment that really sticks out is um, there's like this side quest involved researching cockatoos. And uh, apologies, Ryan, you're going to have to bleep me here, but it's important for this. You you discover a type of uh, cockatoo that's a cuppatoo, <laughs> and like you you convince yourself that oh no, I'm I'm a cuppatoo, <laughs> and then this working class woman you talk to her about how like oh this is the kind of cockatoo cockatoo I am, and she says you're not a cuppatoo. You're 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 fine, and that like moment of kindness, given the weight like the weight of all the horrible things that Harry has done, and the reason why he thinks he's that kind of cock, um, cockatoo, like her saying that felt really heartfelt and really heartbreaking, in a way that like I I have 
like difficulty expressing like how effective that is in isolation but if you play the game and you experience that in context i think it's really weirdly powerful because of all of the stuff that they do with this character's background so you've mentioned a couple of times that the uh the sorry cop uh character trait is kind of an easy one to easy one to fall into and to realistically find yourself very early on in the game and i think there's there's an element of this where in my mind uh, because it's kind of a redemption and it's a character who's done probably the worst couple of days of events of his life there's an element of this where he probably should be sorry for for his actions like the guy who manages the 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 whirling in rags the kind of restaurant motel that you've been staying at you probably should say sorry to him for the fact that you've absolutely destroyed your hotel room and been running around uh, in the in the cafe in the middle of the night uh, threatening to commit suicide and you know flushing all of your cop possessions down the toilet and doing all these other horrific things like yeah you you should apologize for this if if that's the way that this makes you feel and I, I started playing this as this character and immediately just had that kind of fist in mouth just oh, I don't want to be the man who did this. Like, surely this must have been out of character because I wouldn't have made decisions that led to this if that had have been my option. So there's, there's some points where I think you can radio uh, the woman who was working in the in the whirling in rags while you were there, who essentially your horrendous actions um, caused her to want to quit, or I think she has quit and refused to come back. And you can radio her and you can sincerely apologize and say, look, please tell me what I did and I am sorry. And she just sort of, it's clearly so horrendous, the scars that you've left on her, that she just, she is still mad at you. And I was really almost heartbroken for the character that she didn't at least, you know, say, oh, you know, okay, you're forgiven. It just it really sort of drove it home just how awful what you'd done was that three days later when you're feeling genuinely remorseful, you can't, you know, can't apologize properly or can't get a, you know, can't claim forgiveness for it. That ties into, for me, I think the, the, the fact that, you know, that, that a lot of the characters reactions to things that you do are pretty realistic because I mean, sometimes you shouldn't be forgiven for something just because you're feeling sorry that you did it a couple of days later. So, I mean, I, I think that that, and I mean, also in that same interaction, you have the option to like hit on her again. So, I mean, clearly you are not like the best character to be, it's, it's anybody's guess. I guess it's how you're playing the character as to whether he's genuinely sorry or whether he's just trying to get more information out of her. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, you know, you definitely should be, but also at the same time, I think that it's, it's a really good thing f- to say about the writing that they don't just automatically make everyone forgive you when you decide that you want to be forgiven. That's mm. that I like that. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky one because you and I have not actually done this. You're you personally are not responsible for this. This is a character that did this of their own volition outside of your control. So you feeling sorry for it as the player is one yeah. thing, but yeah, you, I mean, I would say that I wouldn't have made these choices in the first place, hopefully. Sometimes that's how it goes when you're that drunk, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, you, yeah. This is pretty bad, no matter yeah, how yeah. drunk you are. Like, this is pretty despicable. 
Let's uh, talk through the thrust of the crime investigation. So behind this bar, we find a hanged man named Ellis, or we'll refer to him as Lely throughout various points in the game as well. I might use those interchangeably, but uh, he is an Orangis mercenary. So apparently there to bust the the dock workers strike that is going on. Uh, along with a group of other mercenaries as well, came kitted out in uh, expensive armor and um, apparently had some kind of rough interactions with a few of the other people who were staying in town. Not a well-liked individual, but um, there are, I would say, a lot of different people with different reasons to want him gone. But the first kind of leg of the investigation points you towards it being a product of a product of the of either the dock workers union or this kind of gang of of young men and women named the hardy boys who act as kind of like the a mix between a street gang but also kind of like protectors of the local mm. community the kind of the uh do goody renegade types you know, as you investigate a little bit more, they're even trying to kind of draw suspicion onto themselves as well in a way that comes off a little, you know, that's the conclusion that I was coming towards anyways. But like, why are you so enthusiastic about incriminating yourself? It makes me think there's more going on here. But uh, what do you think about kind of the early steps of finding the body, examining the body, investigating, uh, interviewing some of the early witnesses. Kuno, Kuno, Kuno's great. <laughs> I love Kuno. Um, kid out back of the bar who is, uh, who is found throwing rocks at this dead body, being cheered on by another young woman behind a fence. Uh, but basically, yeah, it's just this really kind of rough street kid <laughs> yeah. who's an absolute I, delight. <laughs> I, I feel like it's important. It is important to highlight Kuno and Kunis just because they're more than likely going to be one of the first uh, people that you end up talking to, as they're you know based on where they're situated, right next to the body. This is the game kind of simultaneously injecting comic comic relief, while also getting to kind of speak to the state of the. The city, right? The state of things, like how run down everything is, and and the total lack of opportunity or activities for these children to actually engage in, to the point where like their entertainment is throwing rocks at a corpse. Uh, like it, it, like this, you know, Kuno is just a really like genius level kind of intersection between comedy and and. Uh, really, really sad, um, affecting drama. They did so. Th- this is important note where the final cut is quite different from um, from the original game. They changed the voice actor, which uh, is caused some, you know, uh, controversy. I've seen. I actually prefer the new voice actor. Um, I think the the old voice actor, the very, very heavy, very over the top Liverpudlian Scouse accent, works when you know Kuno only says a few lines. 
that would have gotten incredibly grating if you know he was speaking like that for every single line and i and, and i think the the person they recast it to um has a much more natural kind of um scouse uh scouse accent it's it's less forced yeah i i i, I do find the dialogue um between kuno kuno and kunis like really well observed like like this is how teenage like really young teenagers this is how they speak they don't care about logic they don't care if like you know they've said something smart it's all a show it's all intimidation and it's all about just shocking you and being as intimidating as possible even though they're small and don't really pose much of a threat I love. I just love it. I love the way these two talk. Yeah, I. I really like. Like Josh was saying, it, it, they do start off as basically just kind of the comic relief, but then you know, if you you can get into some, I. I, I don't think any of it is actually mandatory, but if you go down kind of the um, the relationship path with Kuno uh, and do like his side stuff, like some of it is actually really just. Ter- like you find out why he is the way he is basically and you know you get in you get some insight into his background and what the deal is with uh kuno kuno s <laughs> which i i wonder about her sometimes but like you know he's he's kind of scared of her and like for for various reasons that you can find out and like it it there's a lot more going on there than it might initially seem, and that that is a, kind of a theme in this game. But I I I I liked that whole section, and I just I thought Kuno was very funny. <laughs> so um, yes, I I funny and then tragic after you actually figure out what's going on with him. So uh, yeah, he's a he's a good character. I liked Kuno. Um, the other, because you know, the the wider investigation in, for lack of a better word, Act One of this game, you're you're mainly interacting with the like the bid the big wigs of um of both the the company um, Wild Pines and the uh, the union. I do find the two like the two conversations that I feel like are the highlight of this this um, early game is the conversation with first of all Joyce, who's kind of the representative of Wild Pines, and then Everett Clare, which is like the closest thing this game gets to like a conversation boss battle, uh, like two very very different characters, and it, it's interesting because um, Everett Clare. In terms of what his stated political alignment um, is, is quite close to my view. But he's hopelessly corrupt. Like he's an awful human being, and 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 at a certain point, you have to have to believe like he's only spouting these views because it helps him maintain a you know a, a degree of power over the populace of this town, um, of the city. Sorry. And and doesn't actually you know doesn't really um, believe or have actually internalized the views that he has. It's just a position of power that he's he's made his own, and it's, and part of that that role is is spouting these viewpoints. And then you have Joyce, like his vessel for corruption and embezzlement. Like he's he's almost the sort of cartoon character that you would have seen in something like. Like an early episode of The Simpsons or something where they were making lots of kind yeah. of anti-union, lazy workers and stuff jokes. He's almost kind of the 
the the over the top exaggeration of why you shouldn't trust the union. But yeah, the the conversations with him, the dialogue options that come up are immensely uh, entertaining. Like I didn't really enjoy going to talk to Joyce. She's very just straight laced and a little bit a little bit sort of I don't know, sort of talking down to you. Like you don't feel good talking to her. Whereas Everett's Claire is at very least he's kind of flamboyant and uh, like entertaining to talk to, even if he is belittling you and making you sit in a chair that does physical damage to you takes points off some of your conversation options because of how uncomfortable you are i found joyce to be quite pleasant actually like not as a force within the Mm. world like obviously she's she's one of the i guess she is the main ultra liberal character that you meet throughout the game the hyper capitalist who is like very aware of the damage and destruction that she's doing to the socioeconomic landscape of everywhere she visits. But um, she's she's very interesting and she's had a very interesting life and very interesting travels. And if you just kind of like if you just kind of fan a little bit of ego, then she ends up telling some like really kind of compelling stories about her travels and her background and experience. And she tells you more about the of state of the world politically as a whole than any other kind of single character throughout the game. Um, and so, I mean, just very, I found very pleasant to talk to, but obviously bomb waiting to go off in any town that she visits, like a very unfortunate character, but it, it, it kind of, for me, it put forward this image of the, um, of the type of person who almost like a vampire, like, feeds on the people around them but is uh but is pleasant in the way that they do so and hard to turn away uh kind of uses the cover of of polite society to do their damage but you know in these kind of light service interactions uh very engaging no that's that's a a perfect description i think it's and that's where i really think that the writing is very strong in this game is because you know you you're kind of getting lulled into wanting to like Joyce and wanting to talk to Joyce because she is very civil and very intelligent and very witty and you know and you don't really want to like Claire because he is he is clearly up to something but I don't think that it ever he I don't think he ever really cracks and like I mean he he does try to bribe you yeah potentially successfully if depending on how you uh go down that path but like i really needed that money at that point (laughs) yeah i think we all did Um, to be fair though you can ask the other you can ask joyce and she just flat out gives you the entire amount that you need to pay for your destroyed hotel room which is interesting if you're okay taking that from either of them that's fine too i slept outside (laughs) (laughs) there are a number of characters throughout the game that do try to bribe you at various points the game takes a really nuanced approach to bribes as well, where you can very deliberately say, like, I'll take the money and I won't do what you want me to do. And it kind of puts that pressure on you, that like social pressure of like, well, but you should probably still you should probably still do them a little bit of favor anyways. Right. There's there's some points where it kind of goes either way. So you can. So at the beginning of the game, you've destroyed your hotel room. The game kind of presents you with this idea of you're going to need somewhere to stay. Like there's a ticking clock that that ticks down as you perform actions and conversations and things in the game. And come nine o'clock in the evening, 10 o'clock in the evening, you're going to need to stay somewhere. And it kind of implies that you need to pay this hotel manager guy the 130 reals to fix up the room so that you can stay there. 
at the end of the first day. And a couple of your options are, well, I suppose there's the one option is just to sleep outside, um, which I've never, never taken that pathway. Uh, although I have done various other hobo cop style, uh, you know, actions. Uh, but you oh, can that was, also... That was another good, uh, good uh, thought that I really enjoyed hobo was cop the hobo cop one. Really yes, entertaining. <laughs> Um, so you can, I mean, you can you can take a, a plastic bag from a convenience store and go and pick up uh, plastic bottles and get 10 cents per bottle and take them back and slowly build up your money. But you can also ask various people for money, which is kind of, there's a few points where Kim says, well, technically, as the police, we can either find people for doing things, which I didn't do, but maybe an option to get larger amounts of money or you can just flat out ask people hey you know how about a little contribution to the police force and there's a few points in it where kim seems all right like he doesn't mind when you ask joyce messier for money and i think your i mean your dialogue option is hey you look pretty rich how about, how about handing over some money and she will give you the entire amount that you need to to pay off for this hotel room alternatively everard claire asks you to do something skeevy gives you a giant novelty check which the implication is you know you couldn't be more obvious walking down to the store to cash in this huge check that you've just taken a bribe from this sleazy guy and again kim is sort of not mad on it but not um, you know not upset or you can just start asking random people for money and that is not a fantastic thing but there's there's various points where i so i asked there's a guy who's selling a whole load of goods out of the back of his lorry and you can ask him for money and it's it's like a fairly high skill check that you have to pass and he hands over 10 reals and the little like air of disgust that came from the conversation box with kim who just said something he sort of turned his head to the side and just said pa corruption or something like that that felt worse than taking the you know 13 times the amount from from the company head so obviously these two characters that tend to serve as the central pillars of this investigation early on, Joyce and Everett, are they come into conflict because Everett has instigated this kind of dock workers strike and are riling up the union workers to stop working. And Joyce is a representative of the company that essentially owns the output, you know, obviously lives remotely, is not a part of the community. And so you know, there's um, she wants production to start up again. She wants these supply lines to be unblocked while Everett is trying to negotiate for his people or for himself or however you want to read it. But there's uh, there's definitely corruption on both sides. There's it's an uneasy thing to be in the middle of. And uh, based on the actions that you take, it can resolve in different ways. You can tip off one or the other to the actions of the other and there's a little bit of you know kind of behind the scenes uh muddling with the details that you can do as well but as far as you're concerned you're there to track down the murderer or murderers and you come in contact with the hardy boys uh who's led by a character named titus hardy uh, basically a gang of dock workers who equally in- intimidate and protect local interests it's a very hostile encounter the first time that you encounter them. And over the course of the investigation, it's kind of a combination of earning their respect while breaking through any pretenses and defenses that they have up. You know, they don't want you there investigating the murder because at first it seems to be because it was very clear that they <laughs> that they did it, that they, you know, strung up this guy, lynched him in the back 
uh, for reasons unknown at the beginning and seemingly later on to protect another character that you meet as well. But details of the examination, when you're actually able to take the body down, examine the body, perform uh, kind of a field autopsy, and then send it in for a lab autopsy, reveal some details like a bullet wound in the back of the head that um, it doesn't seem to line up with the crime scene as it's presented. At this point, you also, you had met Classier, perhaps, kind of making a guess on the pronunciation there. Uh, she's probably actually the first other character that you met in the entire game, but she comes into stronger prominence. You might know her as a Miss Arrangy Disco Dancer, kind of an attractive woman who lives in the hotel room directly next to your own. There's a, you know various relationships that you could have with the character throughout the, you know, whether you are outright kind of hostile or whether you are flirty or whether you're just trying to be polite because it you know it's very clear that she has a lot on her mind throughout the adventure but she becomes uh, very flir- kind of, flirty is a nice way to put it uh if you uh, fail that yeah. check in the beginning it's not even great if you if you if you succeed but if you fail you uh there's there's some dialogue there <laughs> not great that's true i shouldn't paper over some pretty <laughs> reprehensible things that she's just trying to mind her own business and live her own life you know (laughs) she doesn't need all this but she becomes very central to the story at one point the hardy boys present you with a tape that a tape of the victim speaking like he's uh intending to uh to potentially rape her or to kind of pillage local belongings and you know, that is given as kind of a reason why he would have been taken care of. But uh, even that, there's levels of deception in there. So this kind of second leg of the journey, um, I also wanted to highlight and plant a couple seeds that are going to be important as uh, the conversation goes on. Little bits of uh, details that we can work into the conversation as well. A couple of prominent side quests. One is an investigation of cryptids. Uh, You meet a couple of cryptozoologists fairly early on at the beginning, and I think kind of throughout the adventure is played as maybe like the most lighthearted of the side quests. Like It very heavily leans into a skeptical view that uh, these cryptozoologists who are hunting for these um, kind of supernatural stick insects uh, and want you to set traps for them throughout the reeds throughout town is kind of playing on them being deluded or having some sort of a false memory of an encounter in their past or everything but they they're so they're so sincere about their belief and their hunt for these uh these cryptids that it's hard to not have a lot of fun just going along with it as well and uh this does kind of plant a seed for something later on and another chain of side quests is uh, I just wanted to kind of mention because it doesn't directly play into the mystery, as far as I can recall, the uh, doomed commercial district is a kind of a conglomerate building in a way, it's kind of a multi-story building with several different failed businesses in it, um, mostly abandoned, not entirely, that you can gain access to and explore. And there's a series of encounters that you have there, whether it's a almost supernaturally prescient um, uh, a voicemail box, I guess it would be like a like a call box at the door, or whether you it, there's a failed RPG studio that um, 
that ended up going under because their game was becoming too ambitious, which I think kind of reflects some of the anxieties of the actual developers of Disco Elysium during its production. You meet a dice maker who allows you to reroll certain stat checks throughout the game, which is kind of funny as well, but um, very kind of interesting things within this building. So second leg of this investigation, I just kind of want to open the floor for whatever stood out to you the most. I mean, you you touched on the the, the RPG studio and, and the dice maker. That's like... You know, I mentioned before that I, I don't think the game is particularly, like, as much as it's dealing with, like, these high-minded ideas, I don't think the game is up its ass. This is the closest it gets to actually doing that, where it has, like, that meta layer of, like, um, the game is examining the game and um, and and the people who created it. But again, it's still it's 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 riddled with self doubt, and it and like they use that that um, the you know the RPG studio to basically criticize themselves, which I find really really charming. And then the dice maker is kind of them. I, I uh, anyone who saw the call out uh, for free word reviews uh, maybe recognized the quote that um that was used was actually a quote from this dice maker they basically use the dice maker to comment on the significance of role-playing games and tabletop games and why like they are so interesting um for exploring quite complicated human emotions and human um thing uh, you know human interactions um so i i really love that stuff um i i find the whole that that whole commercial building to be another case of the game kind of using quite kind of mundane stuff to kind of talk about you know how you know the bigger you know structures of the of the world and the the society how much they failed people and they talk about like there being a curse on this commercial building but in reality it's not you know it's not a curse it's it's the curse of them existing in a, an economic system that punishes them for you know doing doing the things that they want to do like all of the all of the activity in that building like the gym the rpg studio all of that stuff it's all quite aspirational it's all it's all you know it's all stuff that feels like it's intended to uplift um or provide some kind of joy um and it's all destroyed under under this need to just generate money it's very telling that the 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 part of the you know the city that's thriving is the the dock which is just like a money like pretty much is just like a money generator right it's it's just a way of creating capital whereas all these things that are more creative or more you know, more in service of the community rather than um, in service of people who don't even live in that place. They fail and they and they die, and it's it's really sad. Once again, it's just another very well thought out, very poignant, very well written piece of world building that is depressingly common with uh, you know real world views of sort of economic downturn and. Things like, like you're talking about the docks sort of coming in, but it's removed from the local community. It's 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 almost commenting on the, you know, the sort of the mega stores taking over from the high street stores. There's a another point at which we are investigating a uh, tenement building that is right next to the crime scene 
a particular character had a very direct view of the crime scene as it was going down. And uh, you go and talk to him uh, within this tenement. You can also meet Kuno's father, so to speak. You at least encounter Kuno's father, who is uh, passed out. There's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's plenty to explore. It's a very dense world and um, it's kind of full to bursting with characters and stories. And so I don't know which ones we want to get into more than that. But uh, as you continue to investigate, the world opens up further as on the third day, I believe, you can close a dam and open up almost another half of the map. It's a fishing village that you emerge into. There's a a kind of a boardwalk above it um, because you are tracking down a suspect whose name keeps popping up here and there, but doesn't appear to be among the uh, people that you've encountered so far. You keep you keep hearing of a ruby, and um, and so you're trying to track down where this character would have escaped to, because it seems like she seems to be very kind of pivotal to this investigation. So you know you you suspect that she may have gone across this dam. She may be hiding out either in this fishing village or around it. And so, you know, as you are continuing to investigate over there and opening up new avenues of uh, investigation, you are essentially just trying to track her down, trying to find evidence of where she might have stayed and where she might have gone. Um, Over here, kind of amusingly, you can find your, um, you can find what happened to your car, (laughs) which you pretty much wrecked uh, and um, left in kind of in the lake. I think it froze over or something like that. Uh, and you have to wait almost like an entire day uh, for it to unthaw or something like I don't remember exactly the, the way that that went down. You a nice sit time with for, Kim. There's there's a nice yeah, little exactly. like swing set next to where your vehicle is crashed in the ice, and you sit with Kim for a couple of hours and have like chit chat while the, I think it's while the tide goes out before you can actually That's reach it, yeah. the, like the inner compartment of this vehicle. All the while, kind of it's it's a bit like you're sat there with this sort of evidence smacking you in the face, and I think you haven't quite, or at least Harry hasn't quite put the pieces back together that this yep. is definitely his vehicle and that he was the one that did this. But it sort of gets more and more obvious as as your time goes on. It's a nice little set piece, and it's one of the things that was actually broken in the uh, initial release of the final cut. You can still get the section with Kim. Uh, waiting for the tide to go out but you never actually can get back into the the car to get what's broken and also the car has Mm. no textures on it it's just this big white blob in the middle (laughs) of the ocean so uh yeah a little 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 hiccup there but um still a nice piece i think um as you are on this other side of the water there's another particular side area that i wanted to call attention to and that is the abandoned church which I found to be one of the most fascinating areas in the game. There's maybe two or three side quests that all take place there. You encounter a group of ravers who want to basically turn the church into a nightclub. Uh, You encounter a scientist who is trying to investigate a strange phenomenon within the church of a uh, kind of a, a particular acoustic anomaly where you stand in a very specific place and all like all sound disappears from around you and it seems to be this kind of void space that is that this church was built around and that that goes in some very interesting directions as well from a kind of science fictiony perspective and then 
you meet a shadowy man living in the rafters who you can choose to either engage with in a uh, hostile way, you know, afraid that he might be a monster out to hurt people, or you can engage with in a very civil way and turns out to be a lovely conversationalist. (laughs) So uh, about any, you know, any of the encounters that you have either in the church or even kind of out in the, out in the boardwalk, out in the fishing village, does uh, anything that any of you wanted to highlight about the second half of the game's map? I think like the the church, which ends up, you know, being renamed as the nightclub um, Disco Elysium, which is the, the game's namesake. And I think it's telling that like this area is the game's namesake, uh, namesake because it's probably the most hopeful the game gets and because it's 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 literally like the 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 sci-fi uh, anomaly you're referring to um is actually like a coming doom right it's it's this game's mm-hmm. equivalent of global warming um or you know a natural calamity that is going to cause destruction at some point but at the moment people are just able to ignore and it's a bunch of young people saying screw it we 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 still have hope we're still going to fight for a future um even though they're doing it in a kind of performative um silly way and like they're obsessed with hardcore music and stuff like that there's something weirdly hopeful and really optimistic about their their worldview um and it's like the one time where you can get kim to you know uh, unsheath unsheath his armor and and kind of let go a bit and he dances like to the to the the music that plays in this nightclub and it's like a really affecting mo- and I don't think everyone gets this right some people don't don't um get close enough to Kim where he he dances but if you can do it it's like a it's a weirdly like both funny but really like sweet moment where this character who's so stoic and so closed off all of the time suddenly just lets go and lets himself feel in the you know be in the moment and it's it's really powerful all right so eventually we do track down ruby it's a really interesting section of the game it's uh, a skill that is often useful but rarely often pivotal uh, called shivers which we haven't mentioned up to this point which is one of my absolute favorites uh it's kind of like the the hairs on the back of your neck standing up whenever you sense something isn't quite right oftentimes it'll interject with something that's going on somewhere else and you don't you don't know whether this is like a collective unconscious premonition that harry is having or whether it's a whether it's something that he's imagining that is like a metaphor for something else but it oftentimes kind of points you towards a detail that you might have missed or i mean more specifically a detail that you wouldn't have been able to interact with up to this point you could use shivers to as you come to this large building and examine examine it you know your shivers kind of points you towards a potential intro uh, entrance and i think this is a point at which like you need to pass that check otherwise you can't get into the building there might be another way in i think this is a point that some people have uh, uh some people encounter as a bit of a roadblock as they have to go somewhere else level up reinvest some points to re-roll again but uh you eventually encounter ruby underneath this boardwalk underneath this building who 
kind of traps you with a pale machine. So we talked about this madness-inducing fog that separates the continents. She has a machine that can basically produce that and weaponize it. And she captures you and Kim within its blast. And basically you are more or less incapacitated and losing health uh, constantly while this thing is active. And so this is your chance to talk to her. And if you've invested in health points to this point, then you can endure long enough to get some information out of her. But if you are low on health, you just need to destroy the machine and you've lost your chance to talk to her and learn her perspective, essentially. Um, Based on that encounter, she can either escape or she can commit suicide, which has a very strong effect on uh, the relationship between uh, Harry and Kim. Yeah, I, I I love this interaction. This is another kind of instance of like a conversation boss fight, right? Yes. Um, that the game likes to do. The pale as a uh, narrative device, like I know the game has been talking about it well, well before this. It's such a fascinating thing because like the game for the most part, even though it's, you know, entirely fictional cities, fictional countries all of that jazz um it's fairly down to earth right like a lot of this stuff is just allegory for things that exist in our world the pale is like the most fantastical thing (laughs) that the game um kind of exposes you to and it's it's fantastical in a way that um is really unusual it's not it's not something that i can draw like a clear line to anything else that at least i'm familiar with in fiction unless anyone can think of something else that that like they would compare it to but it's it's like just like this idea that there's this just weird thing that will drive you insane that everyone has just accepted as a part of their lives and yeah, like uh, Ruby's kind of like it, uh, being able to kind of manipulate that and, and use it as a weapon is is really fascinating. The Pale to me reminded me the most of uh, the band Coed and Cambria. The fiction that their music is based upon um, is a science fiction mm. tale in which all of the planets are being held in formation by this force called the Keywork, which we learn in uh, one of the kind of later albums is like actually the like substance containing the afterlife <laughs> so uh when right. people die they kind of ascend into the keywork this force is what kind of keeps the planets in alignment with one another and so it that's kind of what it made me think of this metaphysical property that has kind of spillover physical effects in the in the terrestrial world as well. Yeah, it feels like it's not that uncommon of a, a trope in uh, sort of sci-fi and fantasy to have this kind of uh, creeping darkness or it's often called something like the void that is a little bit like this. It's also often kind of tied into physically being um, like a religiously type of evil substance. So it's it's something that I've encountered before, but the, the way that it's used here as, you know, they, they mention it almost as if it's like sort of a, a fog or a mist or something on the ocean that ships sail out into and get lost. There's talk of uh, Dolores Day having sent expeditions out to try and chart the world, which is partially covered in pale. So in, in my mind, that almost gave me like a, a sort of a fog of war from Age of Empires style thing. But it's this um, this actively hostile force. But yeah, seeing it seeing it used here, I mean, this is kind of like it's a bit like it's sort of being used as a static emitter or some sort of like radio jamming thing that's 
you're playing into your into your brainwaves or something. It's a really really interesting part of the game having to have this conversation split with like topping your health up to try and learn as much information as you can before you just have to smash the the, the receiver down. And I think that the um, the check to actually go and break the receiver is quite easy to do. So it doesn't um, doesn't stop you mm-hmm. from doing it. So it's, it comes up. It's like the uh, white check or a red check at the very beginning of the conversation. It's an easy kind of trap to fall into to just immediately smash this thing but as soon as you do that the conversation turns sour so yeah it's as you say i mean the conversation style boss battle is is a perfect way to describe this this is the first of the game's many kind of points of no return once you complete it it leads into a real turn in the story and um as you make your way back to the town center of revishal you have a standoff against several of the mercenaries and um you know the the hardy boys are involved and there's a real tense situation that gets down and this is like this is a point of more traditional rpg combat in a way you know there are actually like you know you have to take shots at people and you have to there's various ways through it but it's a very ugly situation regardless i think how did we all find this very very harsh turn in tone and mechanics as we uh, encounter this mercenary standoff. Like this varies very wildly depending on how much information you've learned before that you can you can kind of throw back at the mercenaries. Like you're essentially trying to talk these mercenaries down who are about to gun down all of the Hardy Boys who are the I guess like the prime suspects and have at this point um, admitted to being the uh, the murderers of this guy who would have been the fourth mercenary. But it, it goes so wildly different. So this is one point in the game where I actually did do like a hard save because I wanted to see how it went from two different points of view. So it's kind of not really that in depth. But the one of the the early um, mysteries in this is that your character has lost his gun and you're trying to try to find his gun. And um, eventually, after you've completed several quests for uh, for Everett Claire, he'll set up basically go to this point at this time this person has your gun and i went after doing the um boss fight with ruby and the pale emitter it was about two hours of in-game time before the event where i could go and get the gun back was so i went to the um went to the the standoff to basically see what would happen if you went into it unarmed and how how well you'd fare compared to then reloading and going to to do it the other way around and like I don't know what a, I don't know exactly what a good outcome from this this event is like what's the the best possible outcome but either way that I've done this I think three times now a lot of people die here um and I know that you can lose Kim which sounds mm-hmm. horrifying I'm not entirely sure how you do that I assume there's there's a point where someone comes up behind Kim while you're lying on the floor and you've got an extremely easy check to just shout and tell him to duck. And I assume if you don't, he gets killed at that point. But I mean, that was, that's almost a, do you want Kim to die? Yes, no situation. Very obvious at that or point. Or if you so haven't like, gained the trust with him by that point, then he might not react to you quite as quickly. Yeah, I suppose that's, mm. yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah, this is, this is stressful and horrible. <laughs> How does this um did did any of you arrest um 
sorry, the the Miss Disco dancer. Um, I can't pronounce her name. Classia. Yeah, Classia. Did any of you arrest her? And how does that affect how things play out? I didn't. No, I didn't either. Because the 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 game like very clearly points out that if if she's arrested and still around, things might play out differently here. And I've never actually looked up how it how because I I'm very like attached to my uh, my playthrough of Disco Elysium and it's one of those situations where I kind of don't want to know what happens um, mm-hmm. if you play it out a different way. Um, but I it, this is like the one moment that I'm like I kind of want to with this uh, final cut playthrough. I kind of want to see what happens if you arrest her um, because if if there's a way of getting through this without anyone dying. I'd I'd love to be able to do that. I I had one person die. I had the the leader of the the Hardy Boys um, perish in this encounter. No one else did. Um, it was just the leader, um, I believe. Um, which compared to some other people I've talked to is a relatively low body count. Yeah, it's lower than I've had it at all. I've always had at least three of them, I think, die. And I had when I did it earlier, when I had my gun and immediately shot the leader of the Mercs. I think. Th- three of them died when I didn't immediately kill that guy like six of them died they basically all did and the one who didn't just ran off I think two of them survived for me and and that was pretty much it I I did not have my gun I never found my gun or my badge so um uh, well the badge is in the car so you can be um yeah you can be forgiven for not finding oh, that yeah that's okay well that's that would be why I didn't find my badge <laughs> okay but yeah I never found my gun either so um, I think that was because I was trying to not take anything from Everart. Yeah, you have to do like two or three of his sleazy things before he tells you where to get it. I don't know if you can do it otherwise. I went, um, I did go into that, that uh, not final, but that, that particular confrontation just completely unarmed. And uh, I survived and Kim survived, but it was not pretty. So yeah, it's, you can do that. It's just not, it's not a great outcome. It's good for Kim as well because, like, he previously um, had a bit where he tries to shoot the corpse down from the the noose if you ask him to, and he fails. And he mentions at numerous points that he's got awful eyesight during that fight. I, every time I've seen it, he pulls off this incredible shot, like shoots this guy through the eye holes in his armor, like these tiny little sort of pinhole eye holes. So yeah, he kind of redeems himself in that respect. I I think it's very um, like th- this is an example of a. Um, you know, less is more when it comes to approaching action set pieces in games because this this is way more tense and way more scary than any shootout in like an actual an actual shoot you know shooting game. Every moment of this had me on the edge of my seat and had me scared for people's lives. And there's a real like weight to people dying that you don't feel in other video games. Like, even characters that you don't really... Like, the mercenaries, like, you're not rooting for them, but when they die, there's that's like... You feel that, right? Like, oh, a human being is dead. It's not just like a digital avatar, like in, in Call of Duty. It's It feels impactful and powerful and... And it's because the game has been so reserved up to this point, which is why this moment has so much impact. It, it, yeah, it's a testament to really like keep, keep, you know, keeping this stuff, keeping this stuff in in reserve until much later when that investment um, has set in, and and 
you actually care about what's happening when this stuff kicks off. This final leg of the game is uh, a wrap-up to the investigation. You find out that the corpse, as you, I, I guess the mercenary, the victim, you found out a long time ago, he was not hanged. His cause of death was being shot, and uh, you find out that he had been sniped from, you. I guess you pick out three different locations where the body could have come from, just doing some kind of quick visual geometry based on the based on entry wounds and uh, broken glass and, and stuff like that and so you can go to investigate these three separate areas two of them you investigate throughout your adventure there are areas that you've been to before and you don't end up finding anything which leaves the third remaining option on an island that you only unlock the ability to visit at the very end of the game and then this serves as the ultimate kind of point of no return is uh entering the boat to visit this this abandoned island which has a an old military base on it and when you're on the island you end up solving a uh generator puzzle it i, I don't know that felt a little unimpactful for how late in the game and how much momentum the story had built to that point but then you encounter this character who ultimately ends up being the murderer who's who's interesting in that they're very detached from the story thus far their story is deeply integrated into the political consequences of the world as a whole and so you know you learn all these things about the characters about the tension between the dock workers and great pines company and you learn about the history of the woman who was in a relationship with the victim when he died you learn that she's kind of a corporate spy and she was being tracked down by all these various forces. And so, you know, there's there's webs of intrigue here that you're so interested to see which one of them unravels into the ultimate solution to the puzzle. And it turns out that the actual murder was this kind of third party who wasn't really involved in any of that, who was a, a defector during the war and had been living remotely on this island for the past like 50 years ever since the war and was basically just kind of watching the city through his sniper lens and kind of watching the city rebuild and people go back to their regular life but wasn't ready to rejoin the world himself and so he spent time just kind of obsessing over the people on within the city and um he became very enamored with uh, with Miss Disco Dancer, became quite jealous when this mercenary uh, began to have this relationship with her. And so, you know, during one of the moments where, you know, they were having sex, he ended up just shooting this mercenary with this rifle that he had and not really looking to cover his tracks or anything, just kind of waiting to be inevitably found out, um, which we do end up doing and uh, mostly just kind of resigning to to you at the end. Now, of course, there is still one big twist later on, but um, up to this point, how did uh, how did this revelation strike you um, in your encounter with it? I kind of have mixed feelings here because I I don't like that that they dropped in a character who almost has not been referenced or anything ahead of this. I I don't think it's a complete 
it's not a completely terrible thing because it doesn't come completely out of nowhere because of his position and and how he fits into kind of the overall storyline. I tend to prefer it in stories like this where it's something that you could have figured out if you if if you were really on your stuff, you know. And, and in this case, you absolutely could not have. There, there is no way that you could have known this. It, it, it just, it did feel like it came a, a little out of nowhere for my taste. I don't think that it was bad, but it. Well, do you want to talk about coming out of nowhere? That the actual ending after that is something. I think you've had lots of clues over the course of the game that it's not quite as straightforward as how it's been presented. I mean, you do get that sort of rug pull a couple of times where you think it's a hanging. It looks very obviously like a hanging. Then you find out that the hanging was actually kind of a, almost a red herring to cover up the fact that the guy was shot. And then suddenly there's multiple people who've got sort of access and good reason, motive and stuff to do it. So I think the, the idea that it, it is something that you, you've, you've been sort of clued into, but I mean, obviously you're never going to guess, Oh, it's some, a completely unrelated character who just, you know, this was just completely out of the blue that this happened and just almost coincidental. But I do, I do think that the, the idea that it not as it seemed originally has been kind of well, well trodden over the course of the game. Well, like the, the game, even though it like dips its toe into these genre tropes of, you know, the Agatha Christie style murder, murder mystery, it's not really about, like the the game was never about who the killer is. It's it, in much the same way. I'm sorry, drink again. Uh, in much the <laughs> same way, the wire uses crime fiction tropes as an excuse to examine the different kind of social stratas of a city and the different institutions within a within an inner city. Disco Elysium is using this murder mystery to explore different. Uh, groups of people, different institutions, and and political ideologies. So it, I I I don't I never thought like the the kind of solution to this was ever going to be like a neat and tidy kind of uh, you know like a classic murder mystery style sure. solution. It was always going to be messy because the, the game the the world of Disco Elysium is is inherently quite messy and 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 confused. But like as like a like you know, as it ties into what the game is actually about, which is all of these different political systems and and different historical factors kind of informing the world as it is now, the idea of like this agent of this place's history, this place's um past kind of striking from from you know like you know striking from um a forgotten place um and and affecting things in the present i think it it it, it kind of it, it, and i'm i'm in danger of saying something that sounds really up my own ass but like it really speaks to like you know people forgetting their history forgetting the events of the past and that kind of being the thing that destroys you that fi- that thing being the thing that causes pain um, it's it it comes out of nowhere, but be, because people forgot about this guy and and forgot about the I- ideology that he was fighting for, that's why it's like this left field thing. Because like everyone forgot this guy, 
everyone forgot the communists um and their and their goals and their ambitions and and yeah and he he was angry and he struck out against the world that he perceived had had left him behind i do understand like it is kind of frustrating as somebody who plays a lot of like danganronpa and phoenix wright and stuff where i'm in it for the mystery but i think the this last rug pull here in this deliberately unsatisfying conclusion to the mystery um does really lay bare like what the devs are really interested in communicating and saying that like you're not here to solve a satisfying mystery you're not here to gain narrative closure in a way that makes you feel clever like you are a police detective this is your job can't go to your job every day expecting it to be a thrilling and satisfying you know narrative experience but i think even more unexpectedly there comes a second twist in talking with people i understand that this is a twist and correct me if i'm wrong but i believe this is a twist that happens to everyone whereas when i first experienced it i was hoping that it was a twist that either only happened if you went down the cryptozoologist side quest or if you had like a high enough inland empire or shivers meter because i think that the the story does resolve well enough without it and i was really hoping that this was like an optional only happens under certain conditions type of twist rather than being a twist that is baked into every player's experience with the story but you meet a large cryptoid um cryptid stick creature like the ones that you've been hunting for the cryptozoologist throughout the game you have a connection with i think this part is optional whether or not you've invested in certain skills you can like touch the creature and have a conversation and it's a bit unclear whether or not this is kind of like harry looking into this unknowable creature's eyes and inferring a lot of its motives and intentions or whether there is some sort of like a psychic connection being built and it is actually in some way speaking to you but either way it it kind of deconstructs a lot of the um edifice of the this story that has been built on like human history and society and political struggles between these different groups that ultimately comes to a head in this politically motivated assassination due to the very personal frustrations of somebody who's been thoroughly screwed over by the political systems and the wars that have left him in a in a desolate space uh, to coming up to this creature who ultimately says humans are unimportant and the only thing that matters is the continual change of nature and the renewal of of the natural order and stuff like that and um you know the game either says or implies that this character this stick creature was like psychically psychically influencing the actions of this uh of this deserter this man the sniper on the island and um it's a it's a weird supernatural button to put onto what felt like a closed, if not a bit unsatisfying case, um, depending on how much closure and how much of a clever boy or girl you expected to feel like at the end here. 
but yeah, it's, it's another huge loop that it throws you for. So how did this, this giant cryptid, uh, affect each of your readings of the game? This is another one where I have mixed feelings because I, I liked this section, but also in general, I kind of feel like this whole game almost didn't need the supernatural elements. And when I say that, I mean not only the cryptid, but also kind of the, um, God, why am I blanking on what it's called? It's because it's been three hours. Um, what? Oh, the pale, the pale. Yeah. Yeah. The pale. Um, but also because I, I kind of don't feel like the pale was necessarily needed for this whole thing. It's a cool idea, but that's not, that's not what this game was about for me. Um, I, I really felt like the stronger points of it were the human bits and the, you know, the, the interactions between the people and, and everything that was happening there. And I, I, I don't think that it was done poorly by any stretch of the imagination. And it's, it's a neat set piece, but the supernatural element to this game was probably what I liked the least about it. And for me, that's kind of weird because that's generally the stuff that super appeals to me. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I I'm interested to hear what you all thought. I mean, this, this conversation with the plasmid can just not happen. Right. I don't know. I mean, it did for me, but my, I, the conversation cannot happen, but the care, the, uh, cryptid is always there i i believe yeah yeah so like cuz i i like the the revelation that the 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 plasmid is an, an actual animal that that's consistent for for everyone i interpreted the actual conversation cuz it it only really happens if you've leveled up in inland empire i think it is to a degree so there's this there's this like layer of doubt over this conversation as to whether it actually right. happened or not, or whether it's just a figment of your own imagination. It's basically you're using this creature to speak to yourself. So I, I'm not sure I I'm not sure this is as supernatural as it maybe seems if you if you read it as Harry Dubois having another kind of uh episode basically while while witnessing this creature. Well, there's kind of a supernatural-ish element in that the idea is that this phasmid is secreting some sort of pheromone that I think has been mentioned before. The previous couple of times that it's been spotted were a couple who were sort of making out in somewhere near the reeds, and um, the idea that this, this phasmid is somehow uh, secreting some sort of pheromone that makes people more suggestible is then what's causing um Yosef to become infatuated with uh with Klasia through his sniper rifle scope which is weird but not you know completely beyond the realms of possibility it just felt very strange to come to this at the end especially when there's so much earlier on with the cryptozoologists and there's an awful lot of sort of skepticism and you kind of thinking are oh, they're just these daft people who are out here doing this thing based completely on sort of a hunch and on nonsense information and then for it actually to turn out to be completely true it seemed rather unlikely in a game that is otherwise so based on things being kind of down to earth came out of left field a bit i won't say that i didn't like it but it was certainly a a sort of a turning point right there at the end i found this really interesting as a i think 
these stories tend to kind of, whenever things get really politically messy, I think there's a there's a temptation to kind of retreat into like the objective mind or the one that is following science is the one that is going to be ultimately right at the end. You know, Sherlock Holmes is able to see through the political um, machinations of those around him and provide the the scientific truth. And this almost kind of calls that out as like a as much of a cop out as anything else by saying that it this murder is ultimately down to a force that is kind of beyond the understanding of science that is natural natural and unconnected to the events of the story and the events of the 8000 year history that has brought you here it's i don't know it's just it's very interesting as a rejection of the kind of typical storytelling elements that you would expect to resolve a story like this in the face of another rejection of typical storytelling elements um i'm not sure if i like the kind of a layering on of layering on of explanations as to why this character behaved and committed this murder uh, because it seemed like there was a pretty full-on explanation for why he did what he did and then there's the secondary explanation that just kind of like calls the first one into question when that one felt pretty complete in and of itself but it's uh i mean it's very interesting and it also kind of it injected a little bit of levity and majesty and wonder at the point at which the game was kind of at its most grim and dour in a way that's what it's that's what it's doing mm-hmm. right it's it's trying it's trying to say that there's still there's still some magic in the world there's still some life to the world there's still a reason even though the things feel bleak and feel awful and you're at you know you're at as you say you're at the lowest point in the game at that point like it's trying to say there's still hope right there's still even if it's not for us right this is the same conclusion that outer wilds kind of comes to even if it's not for humanity right maybe there's hope for nature maybe there's Mm -hmm. hope for life itself but there is always still hope at the end of all of this Let's get into just very briefly because we are getting on in time. Um, if there are any specific callouts that we want to make with regard to visuals and audio, usually something we cover up front rather than three hours into a podcast, but here we are. I'll, I'll just say, like, the one point I want to make as far as audio goes is um, the voice acting is very, very good. Uh, this is my experience with the base game. I love the voices that they've given the internal monologues the various kind of manifestations of the skills uh, especially the very opening of the game where your kind of lizard brain is uh lecturing you about your it's kind of repeating back to you these these points of self-defeating low self-esteem and explaining to you how insignificant in the grand scheme of things you are just the delivery of that as this kind of sleazy a slightly unhuman voice but delivered in such a way that almost is kind of like a like a 
smooth talking radio DJ. It's just such an interesting choice for that character and that delivery. I was um, really engrossed by it every time it came up. If you like that, I can't wait for you to play the final cut yeah. to hear the <laughs> uh, the narrator. Mm. Yeah, I, I uh, you know. I think a lot of people were really worried about the additional voice acting for the final cut. I think it's universally been great so far. Uh, like uh, people, you know, I mentioned earlier, people are up in arms about Kuno, but I understand the decision. But the narrator is like the biggest like improvement, I think. Um, not only does it make... A bun, you know, the, the this game is incredibly text heavy. I think you've got it down as like one point two million mm-hmm. words or something like that in in the game. But like, yeah, like it makes all of that text much more accessible for everyone. And the delivery of it, like this smooth, like deep, kind of gravelly voice that, like, you could, it's it's definitely that kind of voice where you could listen listen to him, like, read the dic, you know, the dictionary or read the insight, uh, read the phone book, as it were, and and be totally engrossed. It's it's really effective, and it and it helps the tone of the game massively. And like Kim, I think that we, you know, shout out to Kim. It's the same voice actor for the original game and the final cut. Um, they've just obviously given him um, more lines for the final cut. I think Kim has like a quiet dignity mm-hmm. that's really, really effective. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of that. So uh, just to touch on something about the visuals that I really enjoyed, the, you know, the the whole kind of, uh, semi-painted, semi-sort of bleeding watercolor look of the the entire game is fantastic. But far and wide, my favorite part is the the artwork that's been drawn for both uh, the different psyche points. So these little they they almost kind of remind me of sort of tarot cards with this very uh, yeah. striking kind of surrealist art on them. Uh, the in-game portraits that you see of people when you're talking to them are also fantastic. Uh, especially your own portrait that starts off with this pretty grisly looking um, handlebar moustache with uh, sort of attached to mutton chop sideburns, which at a certain point in the game you can choose to shave, which seems like it would be a good idea, but actually (laughs) kind of just makes you look more horrific. Also coupled with this idea, we haven't mentioned that there's sort of a lot of reference to uh, the expression in capital T, capital E on that, uh, which is, I think mostly implied to be kind of a a lecherous kind of drunken uh painful grin that your character cannot seem to clear off his face that you have to have to hit quite a a high skill check in something like electrochemistry to to manage to get rid of uh, and if you if you clear the the expression and shave your mutton chops you would expect it to look better but it really doesn't. And there's even a point where you can immediately talk to Kim and say, hey, Kim, look, I shaved. And he sort of looks back at you and says, hmm, maybe it would be better if you hadn't. <laughs> and that kind of it says a lot. So that's that's cool. And the other thing that is probably my favourite bit is specifically the artwork that you get for the, the different thought cabinet skills, which yeah. is wow. often is really kind of grotesque. Like it reminds me of something that would be from like you know kind of gross 80s kids toys they're a little bit sort of garbage pale kids-esque mixed in with like but surrealist painting but then kind of played out in these little tableaus that look like uh you know it looked like they'd be designed to be 
used as sort of a back piece for a tattoo or something like that. They're really fascinating when you start to, to look into them and try and figure out exactly what all these little bits are like. I highly recommend going and looking up all of the the thought cabinet pictures if you haven't seen them before. They're very busy images. They remind me a lot of like medieval art. And of course, they lean into a lot of the Russian surrealist uh, background as well, but really fascinating. And yeah, each of the skills have really kind of disturbing ghostly portraits um, that evoke the the spirit of each of the um each of the skills but just looks so inhuman and weird that like they're kind of disturbing to look at but they're really intriguing in that way as well like a lot of the game um i think we also need to talk about the i mean not in depth because again running low on time but the music has to be shouted out as uh really mm-hmm. effective for what it is there's a particular tune that plays as you are kind of walking through the central square, that sounds like it's being kind of piped in over over you know broken speakers throughout the square. And um, yeah, gosh, just what a perfectly selected set of of tracks. Um, and the fact that they that at least most of them pre existed this game um, is kind of surprising because of how interwoven with the experience they feel. Like they feel like they were created just for that world. Uh, yeah, British Sea Power again. Let's move on to three word reviews. These come from our community who can uh, boil down this game a lot more efficiently and effectively than we have proven to. <laughs> so you've heard the three hour review. Let's get the three word reviews. The first one comes from Mike Susky, who says, Kim, best boy. Kurt Lewin says, uh, imperfect check system. Uh, Snaky David says, words can't express. Blue Thumbed says, watercolor crapsack world. Uh, Rickest of Ricks says, figurines do nothing. McGarnacle says, make him proud. Uh, Numero Sarja says, communism and gloating. R. Mazer says, unreadably small text. Taters Tolkien says, disco never dies. Undiscovered Pie says, Kuno doesn't care. <laughs> We're rephrasing there. <laughs> yeah, there's a slightly longer version of that that we probably can't say. <laughs> uh, UK Miho says, reapplying for humanity. Real Dave Jackson says, beware the tie. Schwartz Ben, presumably straight from his uh, role as Sonic the Hedgehog, says, uh, big communism builder. Skegzy Dar says, super ultra hardcore. 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 <laughs> <laughs> NC Burnham says, world's sorriest cop. Deadbeat Punk says, I shot Kuno S. That's a failure. I aimed the gun at her, but I didn't shoot. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> that's, uh, that's so big of you. Uh, I don't, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not asking for praise. I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. Mirrorin Mirimi says, Kim, Kim, Kim. Macarius Wrench says, Limbic System Personality. All right, let's wrap it up with our hopefully succinct summaries. John, why don't you go first? Uh, Yeah, so you've probably heard quite a few of these episodes, some recently, some not so recently, where I think I've made it very clear that a well-written bit of narrative or a a well-fleshed-out world is, in almost any case, unless there's something, something else that's really unpleasant there, it's going to get me involved and it's going to be something that I like. And I think that Disco Elysium in particular, the narrative, the conversations are so well written. The world is so well fleshed out to the point where, you know, 
you can almost smell things in the game. Like there's there's numerous points where you just sort of stop and you get like a little a little shivers or um a little inland empire pop up in the corner of the the text dialogue and it starts talking about what is essentially you imagining something that someone else is talking about and the the prose flows so well the descriptions are, are so evocative that um I just I can't not be impressed with how this has been done and uh I really really enjoyed the game I thought the uh the gameplay of it is fantastic the investigation is really compelling the all the different side quests and kind of kooky characters and stuff you meet uh really really fun so uh and i guess unless you just really don't want to read 1.2 million words over the course of about 30 hours then you know maybe not for you but uh i highly highly recommend especially if it's now coming to consoles and things that are a little bit more accessible leah yeah so uh i as i mentioned coming into this i had my doubts but i really ended up liking this game a lot. I think there is a lot to it. I think that it's very smart and uh, about how it tackles some sometimes pretty difficult subjects. And I think that it avoids the trap that I was worried about, which was about it just kind of getting pompous and high-minded for the sake of being pompous and high-minded, um, which I am very glad it did not do. I recommend it. And I, I think we've we've been over a lot of the reasons why, but even with technical issues that I experienced by playing the console version, many of which, as I said, I think they have actually uh, fixed at this point and are continuing to work on from what I understand. Uh, even with those, I still kept pushing on and and really wanted to kind of see where everything ended up. It has enough depth that if you wanted to go back and do a completely different playthrough, or like I did, if you're playing uh, alongside somebody who is is also playing it from a different angle, it's just super fascinating to me how different some things can end up while still getting you through the main thrust of the story, which um, is a mark of uh, really good writing to me. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that if if you are into a a very wordy game um which sounds a little bit reductive but i mean it, it it is it is a very particular type of game that will not appeal to everybody but i assume that if you have listened this far in the podcast then it probably appeals to you at least a little bit so um if you haven't played it then yeah i, I recommend picking it up and giving it a shot um I, it sounds like the uh, PC version is probably the way to go, but uh, I can confirm that now that they fixed the bug that um, actually keeps you from viewing the ending, uh, which was there at the beginning, that the console version is also perfectly serviceable, and uh, I, I recommend. Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite games. I don't think I've ever been as interested in reading every little bit of text within a game as I have with the Disco Elysium admittedly and unfortunately the type of player who skips over any not essential text in a lot of games so i'm not the person who's going to be reading books in skyrim or anything like that uh, which i know that i'm missing out on some good stuff i'm sure it really challenged my philosophies on a lot of things you know i'm the type of person who generally thinks that you know do the right thing and you know, the consequences will generally work out to be positive as long as you go in with the ethically correct perspective. And this is a game that throws that throws that in your face quite often, that if you aim to do the morally correct thing, 
oftentimes you'll find that it that you end up coming away with uh with practical side effects that could have been avoided if you took a morally lower road in a way um and so it's a it's a complex and challenging game philosophically and politically i i just found it really engrossing throughout and uh i would not hesitate to recommend it to anyone josh why don't you take us out uh uh masterpiece uh is the word that i would use i know that like you know people are quite hesitant to kind of put a label on uh, that label on certain games but like uh, i just think like I really struggle to think of another game that matches it in terms of its sophistication when it comes to to writing and and handling all of all of the themes that it handles. I'm really like I you know people who listen to me or follow me on Twitter you know know where my you know political alignment is right. I I'm very very left wing and I'm I'm very politically like politically progressive like everything else but i i find the social media conversation around politics deeply deeply frustrating even from people that i uh, agree with pretty much 100% uh, but i find their their commentary and 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 discourse um, around all of these subjects to be quite frankly infantile a lot of the time and it, it is incredibly uplifting to me and incredibly positive for me to experience a piece of art that is very progressive and very clearly kind of leaning in the political spectrum that I you know sit in that is also talking like an adult about all of these subject matters and treats people like human beings and not like cartoon characters and not like the two-dimensional reality that Twitter exists in. I, I And especially like, you know, it's, it's especially uplifting that a video game is doing this because it's so, so rare. It's way more com- It's obviously incredibly common in, in literature. It's and it's way more common in, you know, TV drama, especially in the kind of modern era of television. But it's really rare in games. And I feel like it needs to be praised and it needs to be experienced just for that for that level of maturity and level of nuance while also making its moral inclinations very clear. And just the way it manages to do all that while still being very much a video game, right? This isn't like a walking simulator or a glorified movie. It's still very much in love with systems and mechanics and using those systems and mechanics in, in interesting ways that enhance storytelling. Um, I think it's incredible. Glitches and bugs aside, I think it's 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 near perfect. I, I love this game. Great. That takes us through our long journey through Disco Elysium. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you again to the panel of uh, Josh, John, and Leah for going on this journey with us next time in issue 469 we will be discussing Overwatch. Overwatch.